You are listening to Uncanny Landscapes, Excursions into the Otherwise, with Justin Hopper. Just supposing you were the manufacturer of a hair gel, you should think, what does the river want from the hair gel? The river where this is going to end up, what does the river want from this? And the philosopher we, we mentioned, Freya Matthews, she says, well, this is, this is along the right lines, but it doesn't go far enough. What we should be asking is, what does nature want us to want in the first place? And I'm sure that for a lot of designers, that would be an arresting thought. And, and the idea of limits like that, uh, it would, they would react against it. But you know, creativity is, is perfectly possible within limits. And, and if anything, it, it inspires more creativity. The real chance for creativity is to respond to those constraints in the most inventive and beautiful, ingenious way you can. Welcome to Uncanny Landscapes, a series of conversations around and excursions into landscapes of the otherwise. I'm your host, Justin Hopper, and you've just heard today's guest, architect Michael Pollan, discussing Flourish, a new book he has co-authored with strategist and thinker Sarah Ichioka, which proposes a new approach to addressing design for a world experiencing environmental and other crises. The music is by Woodchester Piano Company. Michael Pollan is a pioneer in the field of biomimicry, drawing inspiration from mechanisms found in the non-human world to inspire architecture and design, and he's a leading name in regenerative thinking. Michael was one of the key figures in designing the Eden Project and the Sahara Forest Project, and he's co-founder of Architects Declare a Climate and Biodiversity Emergency. This episode is the first of several which will appear, inspired by this autumn's Flipside Festival, a one-day literary festival in rural Suffolk on the theme of Searching for Albion. You can follow Flipside's work as they prepare future festivals through flipsideuk.org. Michael appeared at last autumn's Flipside alongside artist and filmmaker Ben Rivers to discuss their work together on Rivers' upcoming film. I could hardly have been more affected by Flipside in general and Michael Pollan in particular. His work in biomimicry and his discussion of both the challenges and potential of our current environmental crisis seemed like a description of the uncanny landscape, a home with which we feel overly familiar, yet from which we're strangely distanced. Since Flipside, Michael and Sarah have published Flourish, a must-read book for the broad church of the uncanny landscape. Michael and I discussed it at length, as well as his other work, We enter that conversation as Michael explains the unorthodox day-to-day of his practice, exploration architecture. Michael Pollan. Yes. Yeah, that's a perfectly reasonable question because I'm not a a kind of regular architect. So, you know, a a normal architect would have quite a lot of um, quite normal projects going through the office and they'd be going through the various design stages of early design and then producing lots of drawings and all the information necessary to get something built and, and so on. So I consciously chose to focus on a, a somewhat more experimental area. Uh, and, and that is this, this field of biomimicry. So 
learning from nature, using nature as a source of inspiration to develop solutions that are uh, better tuned to the planetary emergency, really. And I see biomimicry as one of the most important aspects of regenerative design, because as I see it, the, the really key challenge facing humanity now is to find a way to integrate everything we do into the broader web of life. And there are uh, pre-industrial examples of, of that. Uh, and in fact, plenty of in, indigenous peoples that still uh, live that way. But it's not something that the uh, industrialized countries have, have managed yet. So coming back to your question, what do I do on a typical day? Well, I do I do work on projects for clients. So at the moment, I'm working on a an idea for a retail client. I can't say much about it yet, um, but it's going to be quite an exciting concept. So you know, in some ways, it's it's quite a um, conventional setup. You know, they they want me to help them design a shop, which will reflect their their values, which are very much connected with regenerative design and reconnecting with nature. What I try to do is to have a really big picture view on what the challenges are facing humanity so that I can make sure that the smaller scale work that I'm doing is consistent with that 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 kind of bigger picture. I, I actually like to think that I, I'm kind of theoretical and practical because uh, yeah. I, I am definitely not the kind of architect that wants the, these ideas to remain on paper and, and we do implement some of them so you know in some ways they're they're quite theoretical in the sense that they're dealing with with things that are a long way from the mainstream at the moment but on the other hand it's based on things that are proven to work in nature and and so it's eminently possible to to make them work um, in the things that we do in our buildings and and, and products and, and the way we organize our cities and so on. That's not to say that everything that works in biology could work in a building. There, there are some sort of technical challenges and, and so on. But, course, yeah. but in principle, the living world is the most amazing storehouse of proven solutions, all of which are tuned to, to a long-term, abundant, thriving future. And, and that's why it's such a, a kind of rich repository of ideas. First, we should take, take a little step back yeah. um, uh, and explain the context for the book, which is that my co-author, Sarah Ichioke, and I decided that the built environment, the way it's designed and managed and, and so on, is nowhere near on track with addressing the planetary emergency. And yet it could be. You know, all, all the solutions exist. Right, right. And, and we thought very carefully about how we can bring about the, the changes that are available, um, but uh, currently are not being implemented at anywhere near the sort of pace that they should be. And so the, the, the subject of how change happens is, is an important part of how we introduce the book. Right. And it's a, it's a very under-discussed subject at the moment. One of our favorite sources on the subject of how change happens is a systems thinker called Donella Meadows. 
And some of your older listeners may be familiar with her because she was involved in the Limits to Growth report back in the 70s, which was widely dismissed at the time. But very recently, have some senior people within McKinsey's analyzed all its data and predictions and, and concluded that actually it was incredibly accurate. And the key essay by Donella Meadows that we refer to is called Leverage Points. And in that she argues that because systems are complex, it's not always obvious where to intervene to bring about the, the change you want. And she draws up a list of 12 different places to intervene in the system. And right at the top in terms of influence is trying to change the paradigm or mindset out of which the system behavior emerges. And by paradigm, my understanding of what she means is, is a kind of broadly held idea shared across large sections of society that determine to a large extent how we behave as a society. And so Sarah and I concluded early on that, that the paradigm of sustainable design was profoundly flawed and that we need to move on to a paradigm of regenerative design. So there are a couple of like two or three key things about sustainability that, that we think are flawed. One is that it's very, very human focused or anthropocentric. Uh, and it needs to ha have a broader view of that, what we would call bio-inclusive, so including all the, the life forms on Earth. It, it tends towards rather mechanistic thinking, and we need mm -hmm. to move to a more systemic view. So by mechanistic, I mean the kind of mistaken belief that if you break something down to, to its parts, under, understand the parts, you can understand the whole. And that's simply not the case for complex systems where all the parts are interrelated in, in um, complex ways. And then the third one, and possibly the, the most significant problem with sustainable design, is, is the implication that the best we can aspire to is to mitigate negatives. Mm. And the implication of that is that if we get to 100% sustainable, then we've got to the point of being 100% less bad. Yeah. And we need to go beyond that. And the, the idea of regenerative design is that we can get into a a much more positive realm in which we can find ways to actually have a positive impact in everything we do. And, and that's perfectly within the realms of possibility. And people have been talking more and more about regenerative design over the last few years. So uh, there are a number of key proponents, people like uh, Daniel Val, uh, Pamela Mang, Bill Reed, and, and so on. Uh, but there's still not a, a very clear understanding amongst companies and designers and so on what it means. So Sarah and I have set out to try and clarify that. We think it's going to involve five really significant shifts in thinking. And one of those is about rethinking our relationship with the, the rest of the, the living world. And a, 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 an important source within that chapter is a philosopher called Freya Matthews, who sets out a, a deeper philosophy of biomimicry. So just to recap, biomimicry is, is the idea that in design terms, we can learn from the living world to help uh, design better solutions that can help us integrate what we do into this complex web of life. Freya Matthews introduces this really interesting term called connectivity. And so the point there is that organisms in a, a, an ecosystem have evolved not just to survive, but to survive in a way that actually enhances the survival and flourishing of that whole system. And that there are, there are some 
examples of this in um, indigenous peoples where it, places that indigenous peoples have, have lived actually enjoy a, a higher or, or display a higher level of biodiversity uh, because of the way that those people have actually managed that, that landscape and, and in Freya Matthews terms engaged with the connectivity of the, the whole system. We see this in um, in the non-human world frequently, like you bring up the um, the rewilding of Yellowstone, not even rewilding, but just the reintroduction of wolves into uh, Yellowstone. And all of a sudden, what, you know, what perhaps to some of us who grew up in a very industrialized world might seem counterintuitive is that introducing a, a sort of apex predator into- Absolutely. A, increases the biodiversity in a way that we can almost hardly imagine. Yeah, yeah, completely. It, and and it has really kind of upended a lot of the assumptions that that my generation uh, learnt when we were at school. You know, the idea that uh, the characteristics of an ecosystem are determined by the base that you know, kind of the the the, um, the plant base of that, and it works as a as a kind of hierarchy up to the apex predators. But as you just said, it's it's is much more involved and much more fascinating than that. And if a, a missing apex predator is, is reintroduced, then it can result in a mass flourishing of that whole system, just as, as they did at um, Yellowstone. And George Monbiot in his book, uh, Feral, he, he describes some other really interesting examples as well. Back to back to this sort of massive <laughs> talking about apex predator. Our apex predator question: What kind of relationship would we humans have with the non-human world in something that you saw as being regenerative? I mean, one way to answer it is is with its antithesis. So often um, people are surprised when when I uh, describe this example, but wait. wait as an architect, if you're working on, say, an office building, you will normally do drawings and specifications. So the drawings describe what's best described visually, and the specifications describe what's best described verbally, you know, the kind of standards that need to be met and, and so on. And it's very common in the, the, in the specification for the outside of an office building to have what's called a non-infestation clause. And that is effectively a contractual commitment to exclude all forms of life from that building. I okay? never, that is yeah. astonishing. Yeah, and, and this is, it's almost universal in, in the design of, of major buildings to have that kind of clause. What we should really be doing is the opposite of non-investation clauses. We need to find a way to coexist in a really mutually beneficial way with other, other forms of life. And one of the most ex inspiring examples of, of what this might mean uh, we, that we include in our book flourish comes from a group in the us called biomimicry 3.8 so they're a firm of consultants and what they talk about is that if you were to be designing a new city or a new piece of city what you should do is you should start by analyzing how a mature ecosystem in that part of the world 
would function mm -hmm. how much carbon would it sequester how much water would it filter how much oxygen would it produce how much food would it produce how much wildlife would it accommodate and so on and those should become the targets for your design for your new piece of city or your new building that is way beyond what we currently do as standard yeah. currently we have certain design systems there's one that's called lead there's one called briam which are kind of checklists that encourage us as designers to, to think about the right kind of things to incorporate, but they don't get anywhere near to, to what Biomimicry 3.8 are talking about. But the thing is, that is perfectly possible. There are enough examples dotted around the world of, of buildings or cities that do little bits of that. So I'm absolutely convinced that we could get to that point. And when we get to that point, then we could argue that we have properly integrated our human habitation into the broader web of life. Mm. And it, it it solves this, you know, there's this problem right now where um, if we're trying to get LEED certification, if we're trying to get any of these kinds of things about, you know, and let's let's remember everyone, we're not we're not talking about some sort of theoretical architectural concept. We're talking about the way we as humans inhabit the planet yeah. on an absolute hourly basis. Yeah. Um, but the, the way it operates now so frequently, you know, there's these there are all these checklist points. And at the very end, there's, OK, then offset, which involves essentially, you know, this conceptual purchasing of tree planting, essentially, in some other part of the world where we've just torn down their trees or, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. It, and uh, so what you're talking about is actually saying we don't want to plant trees in Colombia in order to build a, a building in British Columbia. We want, to, we want to make that building in British Columbia operate the way uh, a, a rock shelter might have, or the, you know what I mean? Like, we, Yeah, I mean, I'd be nervous about uh, using an example like a rock shelter. No, no, that was, that, I realized that. Well, don't, don't worry, that, that's fine. Because uh, I, I don't see anything about this thesis as, as kind of nostalgic. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure certain contemporary architects would try to label it that way but i don't see it that way at all i think it's it's actually um well you know we we, we talk about this idea of holarchy in mm. in the book um and the idea of holarchy is that uh a whole can can is is comprised of constituent parts that are not necessarily organized in a hierarchy so a, a, a cell is part of um, an organism an organism is part of a system a, an ecosystem is part of a broader biome and so on so um, all that is a, a holarchy and it's also possible to talk about ideas of holarchic progress so by that i mean uh progress that actually um, includes and transforms what has gone before. And arguably, some of the biggest mistakes we've made in, in the history of civilization <laughs> are examples of where we have not pursued holarchic progress. So, you yeah. know, colonialism ignored so much of what went, went before and lots of other very offensive aspects of colonialism. And to some extent, modernism as well, you know, it, it kind of ignored so much of, of what has gone before. And what we're advocating is that, that we should learn from everything that has gone before and learn from all the advances in modern science to try and create solutions that are as well-tuned as possible 
to the the, the demands of our age. Mm. And, and I don't see that at all as nostalgic. And I, I should point out that you say right in the beginning of the book, um, for the avoidance of doubt, we are not advocating a return to a pre-agrarian civilization. There are people who do advocate for that. And um, and it is worth pointing out that that's... N- but neither are you advocating some kind of uh, technopolis. Exactly. Yeah. And w- one of the, the key questions, we think, when, when you're approaching a new project that is obviously in a, in a certain place and there are characteristics of that place. A, a really key question to ask is what solutions already exist in mm. this place? And that includes the, the solutions that have developed through thousands of years of human ingenuity, as well as the amazing storehouse of biological adaptations that go back even further. Both of those, and ideally you should not see those as separated because that, mm. that is dualistic, uh, the, the human and the non-human adaptations are a, a, a major source that we can learn from in creating new solutions for that place. You you talked a little bit, um, you, you just brought up this idea of avoiding sort of dualism and, and mm. um and uh, one of the things that you come back to a few times in the book is um, a reaction, a, a reaction to, or, or uh, a criticism of the the very sort of Western philosophical idea of nature as machine. Mm. And, and this all comes back to this paradigm shift that you were talking about before. But it it strikes me that you're that one of the sort of uh, solutions slash necessary changes that you discuss. Um, a lot of them actually boil down to storytelling and what are the stories we tell about ourselves and how do we change those to more realistically reflect a relationship with the non-human world? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right that stories are important and and the more we learn about cognitive neuroscience, the more we realize how we are very much story-based creatures in, in terms of how those shape the way we see the world. Um, and so the term stories that could include kind of metaphorical ways of, of seeing the world, the, the way we sort of frame the world or, or even worldviews, which is the sort of more uh, grand and encompassing idea of stories. And, and the thing about a worldview is that it can become so prevalent that you no longer realize that it, it kind of exists as something distinct, so, you know, a bit like a, a fish swimming in water is not aware of the water itself. and Sometimes the, the, the easiest way to distinguish and dislodge an existing story is with a new one. So, for instance, the idea that time is money has been repeated so many times that we've kind of forgotten who even said it in the first place. And, and it's so widely accepted that a lot of people would say, well, that's just reality. And it's not. It's a story. And the best counter story that, that Sarah and I have come across that we include in the book comes from someone called Karma Shatim from the Gross National Happiness uh, Project or Initiative in Bhutan. And what Karma Shatim says is time is life. Time is not money. Time is life. And then if you just ponder for a moment on the kind of behavior that would emerge from those stories, if, if you take the view that time is money, then it would seem completely normal to you to monetize people 
and to try and get as much value out of those people as possible and that any profit that uh, arises well that's kind of fair enough and, and so on whereas if you take the view that time is life well i think you're more likely to respect those people i think you're more likely uh, to see that time is actually really something precious that and we should think really carefully about how we spend the time that we we have on earth and i think it even prompts you to think about sort of deeper and quite challenging questions like you know what is my long-term purpose and so that that example hopefully describes why we think stories are important and, and the ability to distinguish problematic existing stories and and then to help shape new ones we're talking about something that we don't have three generations to deal with how do we change those kinds of stories in a lifetime yeah well there are some people that write very persuasively about this so jeremy lent in the patterning instincts he's brilliant uh, george monbiot's book out of the wreckage is also very good on on stories and we also include this really lovely and juicy quote from Brian Eno, who says, you know, one of the things that's unique about humans is our capacity to imagine something that doesn't exist and to articulate it and to, to make it real, if only in people's minds to start with. And as soon as you plant that seed in, in people's minds, they start comparing reality against that new possibility. And they start drawing that possibility towards them. And, and he quotes Martin Luther King, who articulated his dream and so on. And as soon as he had articulated that and people could, could grasp that and, and, and see that as a possibility, they started drawing it towards them. And, and so the more you articulate something, and then ideally, if you have the capacity to actually implement that in some way, either as, as a building, a social innovation, or the way you run a company, even, you start to make that reality and and that is the process by which a lot of change happens and by which we can shift from an old maladapted story to a new one to put it in in simple terms which is what the kind i understand we change the story by telling ourselves our own story and then living that yeah i think that's that's a, a pretty good way of saying it and i mean as an architect that that would often be uh, trying to embody that story with, within a, a project. So if you want to dislodge a story like uh, nature is a machine and it kind of exists to be conquered and plundered and so on, which is you know, one of the most damaging stories ever. If, if, you, if you want to dislodge that, then it, it's perfectly possible to create, say, a master plan for a new area of city or, or increasingly a piece of city that is, is completely retrofitted um, to, to, to meet modern needs rather than rebuilding. Uh, you can embody the, the, the new non-dualistic values of, of trying to embed humans within a web of, of natural systems and uh, making really quite direct connections between us and, and the rest of the living world with all sorts of, of benefits for our well-being and, and productivity and so on. Um, and, and this is where there's another important discipline that comes in. It's called biophilia, mm. which is based on the idea that because we 
evolved in direct contact with nature. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that we are happier, healthier, and more productive when we're in regular contact with nature. And one of the best uh, kind of peer-reviewed demonstrations of, of this principle was a hospital in Philadelphia where there was one particular ward where everyone was recovering from the same operation. So it was a good controlled experiment. Half the beds had a view out to a blank brick wall opposite. The other half had a view to a, a planted courtyard. The people with the view of nature recovered 8% more quickly and needed literally half the amount of pain relieving drugs as the others. Huge difference. Wow. And it, you know, imagine quite apart from the, the vast human benefits, imagine the economic benefits of treating everyone in hospital 8% more quickly with half the amount of drugs. Yeah, yeah. We ought to be doing that in, in all our hospitals and, and in a lot of our workplaces and, and schools and, and so on. Jay Griffiths in her book about time that's called Pip Pip, she includes some absolutely beautiful examples. I mean, she's just a wonderfully lyrical writer. And she includes some beautiful examples of indigenous peoples that exist in, in places where they don't they don't have watches, but they can they can tell from what the forest is doing exactly what time of day it is. They're completely yeah. embedded in a cyclical idea of time. Whereas we've got sidetracked into a, a, a linear commodified uh, version of time that is surprisingly limiting in, in terms of um, you know, the way we behave as a result. You'll notice that I keep mentioning quite a lot of sources and mm. we, you know, we cite those all in the book because in many ways we're, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. And what we've tried to do is to kind of unify this into a thesis that is um, very readable for uh, architects and engineers and others working in the built environment. So another important source in our chapter about rethinking time is the, uh, the, uh, the philosopher Roman Krasnarek, who, who wrote a brilliant book, um, very recent, I think it only came out last year, uh, called The Good Ancestor. And, and that's superb. So on, on the subject of deep time, I like the way that Janine Benius talks about this. So Janine Benius is a, a biologist and a writer and, and part of Biomimicry 3.8. And, and, and in order to convey just how young humans are as a species, she encourages us to think about the, the whole of the history of planet Earth as if it was represented as a single calendar year. And you're standing a breath before midnight, looking back over that year. And what you'd find is that not much happened for the first few months. And it wasn't until March that the first life forms appeared. The dinosaurs appeared in early December and they disappeared on Christmas Day. Humans didn't appear until 15 minutes ago. The whole of recorded history is flashed past in the last 60 seconds. In the last third of a second, the time I've been alive, we've extinguished two thirds of the non-human biomass on earth. And so from that perspective, you know, we're sort of hurtling towards extinction. But if you project that forwards, what we do in the next tenth of a second is absolutely critical mm. to the rest of planet Earth and all the future generations that are going to follow on. And I, I, don't, I don't want to paint a picture of despair because in the last tenth of a second, to extend that um, analogy, 
we have mastered all sorts of useful things. But I think it's dangerous, very dangerous, to assume that technology alone is going to provide all the answers. And at the moment, that is a particularly dangerous time, I think, because we've kind of won the climate skepticism war, but we're now in the midst of a new war about um, techno-optimism. You know, the people that want the current economic system to just carry on pretty much as it is, they are trying to persuade us that technology provides all the answers. You don't need to change your way of life. You don't, we don't need to change the economic system. Technology has all the answers. And it doesn't. If we carry on like that, we will collapse. And, and yet at the same time, there's uh, uh, the other thing we have to fight is, is this idea of despair, because you talk a lot about being a possibilist. Yeah. And uh, as opposed to a pessimist or an optimist and, and saying instead, like, no, 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 these, I don't think it's going to be great. I don't think it's going to be bad. I think that uh, the, we have the options as opposed to the sort of the philosophy of despair. Hmm. Yeah. So we decided that this was so fundamental that we made this the first chapter because really a, a transformation of our agency, our, our capacity to bring about change is fundamental to everything else that we talk about in, in the book. And so the idea of possibilism was a term coined by Hans Rosling, the um, late great um, health specialist who, who gave some wonderful TED talks with, with the, the animated graphics and, and so on. And the, the point is that Optimism and pessimism imply some sense of inevitability about the future. And, and you either feel positively or negatively disposed to that. And the idea of a, being a possibilist is that you decide on the future you want, and then you collaborate and, and work on actually bringing that uh, future about. So you see the future as something that can be shaped. And I think that gets you into... Um, a much more constructive frame of mind. And, and rather than falling back on stories of inevitability along the lines of, you know, well, you know, we're all doomed and humans are a curse on the planet and, or, or um, I think it's all going to be marvellous and technology is going to come to the, to the rescue and so on. That's just, ah, oh, Jesus. It's, you know, it's to, to have such an undistinguished, um, unquantified plan for the whole future of humanity, to just base it on a, a positive story, not backed up by firm numbers or anything. I mean, that to me, that is the height of recklessness. And I see a lot of that. I see yeah. a lot of a lot of architects just saying, "Well, I'm I'm hugely optimistic." Well, look, sorry, you know, we are in a, a dire situation. If we carry on as we are, we need a plan for the future with numbers that add up. And so one of the key characteristics of a possibilist that we articulate in, in this first chapter is about evidence-based approaches. And, and we, we celebrate certain champions like the, the economist Esther Duflo, who's transformed the, the whole realm of um, overseas development aid and so on. And, and then we give some examples that are closer to the, to the built environment. And, and so these are, these are people who, who do have... Um, a much more thorough evidence-based approach so we can be more confident that those ideas have a chance of working rather right. than just based on opinions and yeah, increasingly yeah. divisive arguments.
I'm really interested in how our interaction with the human-built environment can sort of act to define or to disrupt those kinds of paradigms. You know, you're talking about possibilism, you're talking about what we've got. In your toolbox and your sort of worlds, your realms toolbox is architecture and design. How do you see yourself and your colleagues as able to right now make decisions and make projects that help that not just draw down carbon or, you know, or, or even act in a regenerative means, but actually work towards changing the, the sort of mindset and the paradigm. Without mentioning specific names, we do highlight some examples of kind of agency minimization. You know, there's one very famous architect who was interviewed in The Guardian a few years back and, and said, I have no power as an architect, none whatsoever. Right. And yet he runs, or he's the figurehead for one of the biggest uh, practices in the country. And in the same article, he goes on to talking about his his plans for a, a new airport in the Thames Estuary, which, which he's lobbying various people in the House of Lords to support and so on. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, how can someone who, who has so much power still think that, that he has none? And I actually think that... that architects and other designers have have a huge amount of agency you know we can conceive of ideas that don't even exist yet and, and get people enthusiastic about them we can give clients what they never dreamed would be possible we can put together excellent teams we can hire good people we can choose the right materials we have huge potential to to influence the future and I just want to make it absolutely clear that I, the, the way I see that process is as, as inclusive as possible. I don't advocate the idea of the sort of sole genius who imposes his or her vision uh, at all. No, I, I actually much prefer the uh, the idea of architect as conductor. So I, I explain what I mean by that. In Benjamin Zander's TED Talk, he's a conductor, and he talks about how a, a conductor doesn't make a sound at all and relies instead for his or her power on making other people powerful and unifying that into a cohesive result. And for me, that, that's the, the sort of perfect model of, of what an architect or an urban designer should do. You should get together all the people who are gonna be uh, using or affected by this and uh, get them involved in, in shaping that future. And that, that leads on to one of the other subjects that we talk about in possibilism, which is embracing uncertainty. Now, often uncertainty um, is a kind of obstacle to creativity or, or progress. And so, for instance, in urban design, it, 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 it used to be the case and still is the case often that if you want to propose some improvement to an urban area, you have to go through a sort of five-year process of consultation and preparing visualizations and feedback and, and, and so on. And often that results in just endless stasis. And one of the most inspiring examples that, that we celebrate in Flourish is, is tactical urbanism. So a good example of this is the mayor of former mayor of New York. Her name was Janet, Janet Sadiq Khan. And she wanted to, to transform um, a lot of the, the, the spaces that were at the time dominated by cars. Yeah. And you could go through a long-winded process, 
to do that. But what she did instead is just use very cheap measures using uh, tins of paint, uh, garden furniture, pots, and they literally just reclaimed certain areas of street, painted them, uh, put um, pots there and tables and play equipment and so on. And people could immediately see the potential and see how much better it would be if more of the city was like this. And, and right. then having kind of witnessed how that temporary intervention worked, a lot of those then became uh, permanent. And just in her term of office, I think she created something like 30 new public plazas and 600 kilometers of, of cycle lanes. Right. That's, that's pretty phenomenal. What you celebrate at the center of a city is yes. an expression of, of that society of, in of a way. Of who you are. You know, if you look at a, a an old city in the Western world, it would often have a church or a cathedral at the center. Yeah. So that you know that was the center of the society at that time. And then if you look at a of a, a whole new city like Milton Keynes, the center of that was the shopping center. Yeah. So you know, consumption was what was at the core of that society, which is increasingly looking at like rather a kind of depressing thing to celebrate, and. I think it's a really lively and worthwhile question to be explored here. You know, what should be at the centre of of a, 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 our cities now? And for me, a really a really key thing is um, facilities or venues that allow people to come together in large groups and celebrate certain things. And some of the most memorable experiences I've had of being in a city and feeling as though I'm part of something much bigger than myself, which is just wonderfully inspiring as an example like the sultan's elephant so this is this it was this huge kind of animatronic um elephant that um, was paraded through london by an art group called royal deluxe who are based in nantes in, in france and I, i'm sure there were certain sort of bean counters in in the, the london um assembly you were saying you know, What's the point? You know, what's it worth? Has anyone done a cost benefit analysis yeah, on this? Yeah. Well, look, it's just it's for people's enjoyment, and <laughs> yeah, and uh, I think that you know the the more that our lives become virtual in terms of work and 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 so on, I think the more we will crave and value physical experiences, and and we've seen that to some extent. You know, e even with the financial crash in two thousand seven, two thousand and eight. Uh, the numbers attending concerts, festivals, theatre in the UK has steadily continued to increase. You yeah. know, there's, there's something quite deep going on there in terms of, of a shift in society. It is, yeah, that is an interesting, I mean, even in the past two years, you know, even everything, even everything we're going through at the moment, you know, you can't, if you try to buy a ticket for something, you're going to have a tough time. <laughs> well, there, there was there was a long period that seemed to go on for decades where the only <laughs> festivals were, were Glastonbury and then there was the Reading Festival for, for heavy metal fans. Like, <laughs> that was it. And now, you know, there's just, you know, there's, there's just too many to get your head around.
there's a kind of need for for thinking that operates on a global level and and taking ideas globally yeah but but building designing living local yeah. in a very local context yes yeah sure so th this is an area that um can sometimes result in rather sort of polarized thinking and and if you talk to some people about hyperlocal solutions they immediately think well this sounds very parochial and and, and so on or even nationalist yes yeah yeah indeed um and i actually think that's a fairly easy one to to resolve and it involves distinguishing clearly between different types of resources and principally distinguish between uh, physical resources and intellectual resources and for Sarah and I in our book we argue that our best chance of shaping a positive future is to localize our physical resource and globalize our intellectual resources and so as one example of that there are species of bamboo that grow in almost every tropical part of the world so it's a fantastic physical resource it sequesters carbon faster than any other plant it's it's inherently incredibly strong it's very adaptable so it can be used at a very local level and we can share the knowledge of how to use it to its greatest effect globally because a lot of the ways of of using bamboo in i don't know sumatra would be equally applicable to using it in um i don't know um brazil say um and then there's there's a another kind of dimension to this, I suppose, which is coming back to what we were talking about in, in terms of our relationship with with the, the rest of, of the living world. And there's an architect called Bill McDonough who wrote a, a, a very good book called Cradle to Cradle, and he wrote that with a chemist called Michael Braungart. And um, it's essentially it's it making the case a very clear case for the circular economy, and in that book they they talk about how if you're just supposing you were the manufacturer of a hair gel you should think what does the river want from the hair gel the river where this is going to end up what does the river want from this and the philosopher we, we mentioned freya matthews she says well this is this is along the right lines but it doesn't go far enough what we should be asking is what does nature want us to want in the first place and i'm sure that for a lot of designers that would be an arresting thought and, and the idea of limits like that uh, it would, they would react against it but you know, creativity is is perfectly possible within limits and and if anything it it inspires more creativity i mean as an architect you you never have a blank canvas you've always got something to to react to a brief a place uh, and the 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 real chance for creativity is to respond to those constraints in the most inventive and beautiful, ingenious way you can. I am best known for the work I've done on biomimicry and that started when I was part of the team that designed the Eden project and then I set up my company so that I could focus on it and um, it, it's a it's a design discipline that 
really does help us address some of the, the key challenges that, that we need to address. It, it allows us to kind of rethink our very linear, wasteful, fossil fuel-based systems in cities so that we could move towards mimicking ecosystems, which are all densely interconnected, that zero waste, that, that the underutilized resource from one part of that system becomes the, the nutrient or input for something else in that system. The uh, hum, human systems tend to be um, extractive, whereas ecological systems are regenerative. And really, the, the, you know, the characteristics of ecological systems are a fantastic set of uh, guides for how we need to rethink our cities and, and industries. And we had a chance to implement some of these ideas on the Sahara Forest Project, uh, which I jointly initiated. And that was about bringing together technologies and land uses in ways that are synergistic. So rather than kind of doing the energy over there and the water over there and the food somewhere else, if you bring those together, you can often find ways to make them more productive together than they would be by themselves. And that model was and is a, a, a way of creating food in arid regions while also producing a lot of clean energy and revegetating areas of desert. And that's one that we proved, you know, we built a version of that in, in Qatar that worked extremely well. Another example of this is we designed for a client in India, um, a zero waste textiles factory that showed we could get all the way to zero carbon, um, very close to closed loop on, on water and create a fantastic working environment for the people inside and all that with a payback period of five or six years. And so, you know, a lot of those solutions came from uh, biomimicry, particularly ecosystems, um, at least mimicking the characteristics of ecosystems. And then there are other dimensions to this. You know, if, if you have a whole systems perspective, starting at the, the, the whole system of, of Gaia, planet Earth, and understanding how that works as a very complex set of of interconnected nested systems. And then coming down to the individual ecosystems and seeing how those function, that implies certain things about what materials we should use. So nature builds with a very small and safe subset of the periodic table, mainly carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, hydrogen. And we could learn a lot from uh, moving towards using those materials. And then we can learn uh, when I say that, it, it, simply because that, that would make it much easier to um, incorporate those materials cycles within cyclical circular economy systems. And then we could also learn from biomimicry in how we put those materials together in incredibly efficient ways. So there's this idea of structural hierarchy and, and that can be seen in a lot of biological structures. And perhaps the easiest way to explain that is, imagine if you were making a bridge to cross a small river, you know, one way of doing that would be to just put a massive steel beam across it. A much more yeah. efficient way would be to turn that steel beam into a truss where you separate the compression members and the tension members. And that, that would use a fraction of the resources. And that's one level of hierarchy. You could then take each of those members and turn that into a truss or a stranded cable. That's the second level of hierarchy. The Eiffel Tower, that's got three levels of hierarchy. So it's got trusses within trusses within trusses. A lot of biological structures have eight levels of hierarchy. Right. We, in our buildings and structures, human-made 
buildings and structures, we rarely go beyond one level of hierarchy. And yet with each level of hierarchy, you can save huge amounts of, of resources. And I've shown in my earlier book, Biomimicry and Architecture, how it's perfectly possible that we could achieve factor 10 or even factor 100 savings in our resource use by learning ideas from biology. So it would use far less physical resource and a lot more human resource. And that's actually a good thing in a world where we've got abundant people and dwindling physical resources. In my talks, I sometimes use a slide that shows, it looks as though it was taken in the kind of late 19th century. It's a photograph of a train with literally a whole redwood tree cut up into chunks on, on the train carriages. Yeah. And the, the point there is that at the start of the Industrial Revolution, people were scarce and resources were abundant. Yeah. So anything that saved on human resource, even if it meant using kind of profligate physical resources, seemed to make sense. Now we've got the opposite situation. You know, yeah. we've really got to get better at uh, saving or using physical resources much more efficiently. And we've got to find meaningful things for a huge population to do. And for me, there's, there's, there's very little that is as rewarding as actually being involved in making things and, and seeing how the thing you make can make a difference to people's lives, a positive difference. Imagine a town that operates in a in a regenerative way. What are a couple things about that town that would seem really different to us walking through a town today? I think the most striking thing would be the the difference in the spaces between buildings, that they would right. be far less dominated by cars, and they would be uh, far more dominated by uh, nature and um, forms of water um, management, uh, and most importantly, what we were talking about earlier, ways of bringing people together in more socially cohesive ways. You know, social isolation is, is well, it's sometimes described as a, an epidemic, and, and mm. it's, it's very real. And, it, you know, social isolation can easily take five or ten years off your life. Uh, and so a regenerative city would be one where it, it's designed so that you, you don't need to use a car anywhere near as often. And I think the clearest and most tangible example of this is something that's being particularly pioneered in Paris by the, the mayor, Anne Hidalgo. Um, it's called the 15-minute city. And, and the idea there is that you can plan or retrofit a, an area of city so that people have everything they need on a kind of weekly basis within a 15-minute walk or cycle. Now, clearly, some people are going to travel beyond that to work and so on. But but for the most part, you can access everything you need within a, a short walk or cycle. Right. It would be much cleaner. It would be much better in terms of social cohesion. It would be much more convenient. It would be regenerative to your to your well-being. And um, we, we would not have anywhere near the same problems of asthma and obesity and loneliness and, and so on. So, you know, 
often the transformation that people talk about in addressing climate change and the planetary emergency more generally, it's, it's framed in very negative terms about all these things we're going to have to give up. Yeah. Well, there are one or two things we're going to have to give up, you know, like, you know, private jets and diamond encrusted handbags and so on. <laughs> but <laughs> that's no great loss, really. Yeah. When you think about all the things that we can gain, you know, much healthier places to live, better food, more cohesive communities, safer places for our, our kids to, to eat. That, that positive future is within reach. Hmm. And that's what can be so frustrating for someone like myself, because that is there, it's right there, it's within our <laughs> reach. And if it were not for the kind of, frankly, ignorance of, of our current breed of politicians that is determined to hang on to the current degenerative economic system. If it were not for that, we could start shaping that, that future mm -hmm. right now. Could you tell me briefly about this Ben Rivers project and, mm. and uh, specifically, you know, what your imaginative role in it is? Um, I know that it's a work in progress at most, but um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So I was introduced to Ben Rivers, who's an artist and filmmaker. I was introduced to him by Gareth Evans, who's just a, a, a wonderful connector and curator. How everyone meets everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Almost, yeah. Um, and Ben is working on a project called After London, a film. Um, and the idea is that this will be set in a post-apocalyptic post future. So it's not like Mad Max or The Road, it's when things have settled down. And um, he's asked me to collaborate with him on imagining what some of these kind of settlements might look like, what, what, how might people be living? And I, we're still at the early stages, but I found it a really enjoyable and, and energizing experience. And, that, and that's partly because it's, it's actually surprisingly difficult to do experimental things in the built environment. Mm. You know, everything you do has to be thoroughly uh, tested and reliable otherwise you you know you get sued or it doesn't meet building regulations and so on and, you know there, there are good reasons for that being the case however you know there ought to be greater potential somehow to to experiment in laboratories or, or wherever so that we can move on the, the way that we build um, and so that you know that that's why I'm excited about this collaboration with Ben. And you know, one of the things that we've been pondering on is, well, you know, what kind of attitudes might be prevalent in a post-apocalyptic post future? And, and how might, yeah. might that be manifested in, in the buildings? And, and so you know, one idea that emerges, well, you know, people would, would have to have mastered how to make good homes for themselves without any petrochemicals at all, just using biological materials on the site itself. And so we're collaborating with a firm called Biome that have uh, developed this way of, of creating really high performance insulation using mycelium and biological waste. And so we, we, I hope that we're actually gonna do this, but the potential exists to create a really beautifully warm little dwelling just using the materials on the site. And then another thing that Ben and I have talked about is it's an idea that comes from this professor of indigenous studies called Tyson Junker Porter, who, who comes out with some enjoyably challenging things. One of which was, um, you know, the digital revolution. Well, you know, 
That'll just be, come to be seen as a blip in deep time, followed by a one thousand year cleanup operation. Right, and that, yeah. you know that's a pretty arresting thought. But yeah. Ben and I were talking. All right, well, so in a, what would the attitudes be like in a one thousand year cleanup operation? Is is quite possible that burning anything would be regarded as taboo, because right. people would be actively trying to steadily reduce the CO two levels in the atmosphere. And so, we've talked about ways of of using salvaged mirrors to to create firstly a an amphitheater lit by moonlight so you can hold performances uh, when at the full moon and then when you're not using it for performances you could use those mirrors to focus sunlight to heat up small rocks and when you want a bit more warmth at home you take a, a hot rock back to your your dwelling right and um, from the theater yeah, yeah, that's right. That's beautiful. <laughs> well, I think so, too. Uh, so those are the kind of things we're exploring. It's still early days, so I'm not sure which of these ideas will make it through, because obviously, it, it, to some extent, it's kind of iterative with the development of, of the script and the board sure. ideas. But it is, it is an interesting, you know, um, I, I was first introduced to the idea of building with, building with mushrooms, let's just say, yeah. um, through an art exhibition. Okay. I always, I probably always rom over romanticize the arts, but but it it certainly does offer an opportunity to people like yourself to to think in a way that that is actually impossible at the moment. But won't mm. you know? It's like it's it's like science fiction. It's like everything from you know two thousand one is now yeah our everyday life. Well, it, it's the it's the point that Amitav Ghosh makes in The Great Derangement. Um, and I can't remember the exact quote, but the, the, the gist of it is that it's not really the skills of a politician to imagine a new future. That is yeah. the re responsibility of the artists and the, the, the creatives. And that is what we could and, and should be doing. And I, 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 I I, I know quite a lot of artists and I know that there are some who are uneasy about getting involved in something that feels a bit didactic or feel as though they've been co-opted to a cause. But on the other hand, the shift we need to bring about in a very short amount of time, in the next 10 to 20 years, Sarah and I in our book, we argue that is much more of a cultural shift than a technological shift. It's got to be about shifting these mindsets. Technology alone cannot save us. Culture it needs to be a big part of that. Thank you for listening to Uncanny Landscapes. We'll be back soon with the next installment. Follow us on Twitter at Unlandscapes to find out when. My guest was architect Michael Paulin, whose new book with co-author Sarah Ichioka is called Flourish. Available from flourish-book.com. This and other sources for info on Michael and Sarah are linked in the podcast info. The music is from the album Persevera by Woodchester Piano Company. Look for them on Bandcamp or in the podcast info. The title theme is by the Belbury Poly. The Uncanny Landscapes icon is by Stefan Musgrove, Firebrand Creative. Additional special thanks to Gareth Evans and Flipside Festival, flipsideuk.org, or visit the links. I'm Justin Hopper. 
you can contact me via Twitter at Unlandscapes. And finally, all the links I've just mentioned are in the Uncanny Landscapes site, uncannylandscapes.podbean.com. More installments coming soon. If you've enjoyed this and other episodes, please like, rate, and share the podcast, or just tell a like-minded friend. Until next time, let's aspire to what Basho said when looking back on his life. Asleep, I hovered among morning clouds and evening dusk. Awake, I was astonished at the voices of mountain streams and wild birds.